Pastor Chris's podcast. So in early two, in the early 2000s, Kelly and I lived in an apartment in Lithia Springs, Georgia. And one of our neighbors was a man named Nadine. Nadine was a very interesting character, different from most people that I'd met. I came from a, a different background. Nadine had moved to America. He was from Iran, the first Iranian that I think I'd ever met before. Now, that wasn't the only thing that made him interesting. Uh, he was also a Muslim. Now, Muslims um, and, and Muslims in Iran tend to be very strict in their religion, and, and they do not consume alcohol. But Nadim was an alcoholic. So that was number one, which was a very interesting thing. And that's how I actually met him, because quite often he would be sitting out in the courtyard in the apartment complex. When I would come in to my apartment, he would be there, and he would be uh, somewhat intoxicated and very talkative. And um, I ended up getting into several conversations with him. But Nadim was a, a Muslim alcoholic who was married to a Catholic nun. Now. I don't know how that works, because as I understood it, um, nuns, Catholic nuns, are celibate. But I guess maybe it was a former nun, but that's the way he explained it, that she was a Catholic nun. But interesting, um, we had lots of different conversations. And to this day, every time I cook rice, I think of Nadine. Because he invited me into his house one time, and he showed me the proper way to cook rice. And he had some good points. Add a little bit of olive oil into it, add a little bit of salt in it, and it is really good. I really liked the way he cooked it, and I still do to this day. But other things that we talked about came up to religion because um, he found out, you know, I would say, I'm on my way home from church, and he would start asking me about it, and he was a Muslim, and he wanted to share about his faith, and I, I learned a lot about um, Islam from Nadim, and I also felt led by God to share with him my faith so that he could understand me a little bit better, and so we would talk about things, and several times he would say, he would bring up, you know, Chris, the Quran talks about Jesus. Jesus was in the Quran too. And we Muslims, we believe in Jesus. And, and we would talk about that. And I would say, yeah, but you know, in the Quran, Jesus is, is a man, right? Jesus is considered a prophet. But in Christianity, Jesus is considered the son of God. And so we would talk about that back and forth, back and forth. And then he would, a lot of times he would just say, Chris, Chris, Jesus is the son of God. We are all children of God. And I would say, yes, but that's not what we mean when we read in the Bible that Jesus is the only begotten son. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. The Greek word for only begotten is a, a hard to pronounce word called monohagenes or mono, yeah, mono. Monogenes, monogenes. Okay, I think I got that right. It's a Greek word that means uniquely born or one of a kind birth. So when we say Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, we're saying that, that the conception and birth of Jesus was unique. Nothing like it had ever happened before 
or will ever happen again in the future. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit and is the only one who has two natures, divine and human, all God and all man. And so though in some sense we are all children of God, we are not children of God like Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Does that make sense? Okay, so you kind of follow our reasoning there. Now the world likes to say we are all children of God. And I hope that you'll pay attention today and hope you'll be able to stick with me and follow me as we wind our way through this message because it's very important. The issue is we are dealing with some half-truths and partial truths of the world and we are comparing them to the whole truth of God. The world says we are all children of God. Now, in some sense, this is true. And the world and even the church has emphasized this idea very much over the last century because we've needed to. There are some important things that we've been dealing with as we are dealing with problems in our world. God created us all. And there is no race that is superior to another. As a matter of fact, there's really only one race, the human race. To speak of the black race or the white race or the Asian race or the or Iranians or Middle Easterns, Easterners as races is, is an idea that grew up in the 15th century. It was a way for Europeans to justify going in and conquering other countries that were inhabited by different races, such as in Africa, in uh, uh, Asians, um, even Native Americans. Even they, uh, people in England even looked at Irish people as being of a different race. And so for them to go in and conquer those people was justified. We were not fighting our brothers and sisters in another country, we were fighting a different race, and maybe even an inferior race, and to go in and to conquer them, and to take over, and to lead them was considered um, worthwhile and justifiable. But genetic studies in the 20th century refuted the existence of biogenetically distinct races. What does that mean? It means genetically we are all one race. There's really no genetic difference between the different races. Even though we may look different, we may even have different languages or cultures, but we are all one race. When we say the word race, what we really mean is ethnicity or culture or people groups, but we're all one race. Furthermore, according to Genesis, God created all people through Adam and Eve, the first humans. And so to say we are all children of God is true in a broad sense. And usually when people say we are all God's children, they are calling on everyone everywhere to live in harmony. And that is a good idea. I like that. I think we should work to that. We certainly do need to set aside our petty squabbles and see all human beings as being part of one family, one family, the human family. Let's treat each other fairly. 
Let's be done forever with racism and discrimination. As Martin Luther King Jr. said so passionately, judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. That is good words. But in this series, we are comparing what the world says to what Jesus says. And what does Jesus say? Well, I want to read to you from John chapter 8, verse 42 through 44. Jesus told them, If God were your father, you would love me, because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do ev the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. He, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, most people prefer a sweeter picture of Jesus. Picture where he's holding a lamb and he's just being so nice and sweet. But often when we read the Bible, we see that Jesus is oftentimes giving hard truths. And Jesus, we see in chapter 8 of John, is not a sweet Jesus holding a baby lamb. In John 8, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees in Jerusalem and he's telling them the cold, hard truth. There are some people in this world who aren't God's children. They are the devil's children. And what we see in Scripture is it's not just people, it's not just some people, it's all people. All people who have not repented and turned to Jesus are children of the devil. What makes someone a devil child? Well, according to Jesus' own words, those who reject him are children of the devil. Now here again, this message is about to take a curve on the road, so brace yourself. You know when you're riding, you've got to reach up and you've got to grab that handle there when you're going around a curve so you don't tip over. Most people think of a devil child as an especially bad kid, Right? It's the one that gets into the, the chocolate syrup and spreads it all over the kitchen when you're not watching. But who among us is really good? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18, is even harsher. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies, snakes. Venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. 
Now that might seem harsh, but understand holiness and righteousness are not measured by human standards. They are measured by God's perfect standard. And when we compare human goodness to God's perfection, human goodness doesn't even compare. And so when we read these words in Romans, they describe you and me. It's not talking about bad people. It's talking about all people. All people. Isaiah 64 verse 6 puts it this way. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. Remember who he was talking to. These were Pharisees. These were the holiest people who lived where Jesus lived. They walked around in robes. People looked at them and saw them in their clerical uniforms and thought, oh, they must be good people. And a lot of their actions backed it up. I mean, how many of us, are you good at memorizing scripture? I mean, most of us are doing pretty good if we can get John 3.16 and maybe a few more to go along with it. They had memorized by heart the first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine that? That is how devote they, devoted they were to their religion. And Jesus said, you are children of your father, the devil. But when the teachers of religious law, who were the Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? See, they wouldn't do that. They knew better than to hang around with the wrong crowd. And they didn't associate with people that did those kinds of things. What was our question again? Are we all children of God? The answer, according to Jesus, is no. Those who reject Jesus and thus reject God are children of the devil. And really, everyone has done this. Here's the thing. God created us. But because of sin, we have turned our back on God and we have rejected him as our father. We walked away. It's like we divorced him as our heavenly father. Have you ever heard of that? It's a rare thing that happens, but in the United States, there's actually a legal process by which a child can divorce their parent. If their parent, for some reason or another, does not take care of the child, does not have the child's best interest at heart, there is a legal process through which a child can, what is called, be emancipated from their guardian or their parent so that they are no longer that that, that parent no longer has the right to 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 make the child do what they need what they want to, them to do it doesn't happen often 
But that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in. By our sin, every person who lives has rejected or divorced God. We've said, you're my heavenly father, but I do not want to be subject to you. I do not accept your authority. I will not follow. I choose my own path and you will no longer have the authority over me. I'm walking away from this relationship. And it's not just prostitutes or notorious sinners that have done this. Even supposedly good, holy people have turned their back on God through sin. We've all become children of the devil. It is only by the grace of God that we can return to a right relationship with God. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family. Why would God need to adopt us into his family if we were already his children? Because we walked away and we were not his children anymore. The whole story of the good news of God can be summed up, perhaps, in a single parable that Jesus told. The parable of the prodigal son. It's in the 15th chapter of Luke. Now I'm going to read this. You may be familiar, you're probably familiar with it. It's a very famous story that Jesus told. But he uses a lot of sim symbols in the story. And so I want to um, preface it and then read it to you again and make some comments through it. In the story, the father is God. And the younger son represents the notorious sinners that we know of in our world. And the older son represents the good people of the world who generally follow the rules. And everybody looks up to them as being good people. And so the story goes, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, what has the younger son done here? He's basically said, I want to divorce you. You will no longer be my parent. The younger son, they lived in a, probably on a family homestead, agricultural society, and the, the younger, all the sons would be out working in the field, serving the father, running the family business. But this younger son, he doesn't want to do that. That's not the life that he wants for himself. He wants to go off and do his own thing. He no longer wants to be subject to his father's authority. He wants to live life for himself the way he wants to live it. And he basically says to him, look, when you die and I get my inheritance, I'm going off to do my own thing. And I honestly just wish you would die now so I could get my money and go, do, go live my life. I'm out of here. Why don't you just give me the money now so I can leave? It's pretty harsh. That's what the son was saying. 
So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. See, the father is an amazing person. He doesn't want his son to be there against his will. He only wants his son to be there if he wants to be there. If he doesn't want to be there, he will release him to go. Even though I know it broke his heart to do it. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time that the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but nobody gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. You see, the father graciously adopted the son back. He didn't receive him as a hired son. That's why he says he gave him a robe and a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. These were symbols that he was not a servant. He was a son. And he was back in the family. But here, I think, is the most important part for us who are gathered here in a church service as church people. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. He, when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never even gave me a young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The older son was angry. He thinks... He is better than his younger brother. He thinks 
his father. Now remember, who does the father represent? God. And he thinks God owes him a reward for being good. And that's the question that probably we need to address as church people, as good people in society. Do you think God owes you something? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost. Now he's found. And there's something really cool about the way Jesus tells the story. He never tells us whether the older brother went in to the party or not. And he did that on purpose. You know why? Because most of us are the older son. And we're the ones standing out in the cold while prostitutes and gangsters and despised sinners from all over the world throughout all time are inside partying with Jesus because they already knew that they were bad people. They already knew that they'd been following the devil. Nobody had to tell them that they needed to repent of their sins. They knew it. They were ashamed of it. They realized it. And they quickly repented. And they went in to let Jesus save them. Meanwhile, so many times, good people throughout history feel like God owes them something. And that attitude in and of itself is a terrible sin. God doesn't owe you anything. If you got what you deserved, you would be with your father, the devil. But God doesn't give you what you deserve. He's much more gracious than that. Instead, he graciously invites you to receive his grace and to come in to the feast. But you're the one and you are the only one who can tell how the story is going to end for you. Are you going to stay outside with your arms crossed and your lip poked out? Or are you going to go in and join the party?